Okay, good evening and welcome to the Rashi Shear, which we're about to start with Perak Bet Pasuk Yud Dalad. But before that, too, well, first of all, an announcement, and this is for the beginning of the Shear, just in case people don't listen to the end, there will be no Shear next week. So the Sunday after Purim, no Shear, because I, Emir Hashem, will be overseas, but we'll be back the following week. So the Sunday after the Sunday after Purim, back again. Um, and the next thing I want to do is say a little thing about a Rashi from this week's parasha, because I think it's a nice thing to do. And at the very, very end of Parshat Sav, after we've had a long description of all the things that Aaron did for his miluim, for his inauguration, um, and the things that he's then going to have to do, and it's going to last for seven days, the Pasuk says, Vayas Aaron uvanav et kol hadavarim Hashem biyad Moshe. Aaron and his sons did all the things which Hashem commanded by the hand of Moshe. And Rashi says there a comment that he says in some places, when we get something like Asher Tziva Hashem, which Hashem had commanded, Rashi says there, the very last Rashi on the parasha, Lahagid Shavachan, to tell of their praise, that's the praise of Aaron and his sons, Shalo Hitu Yamin Usmal, they did not deviate to the right or to the left. So the Mepharshim asks, why does Rashi want to say this at this particular case? Um, and why does he use this Lashem? They did not deviate to the right and to the left. So I saw in the Muscular David, uh, there are various different answers given to this question, but the Muscular David says the, the particular thing that's going on here is that Aaron might have been slighted that he didn't receive the Nevoah from Hashem directly. He was also a Navi. And Aaron might have said, well, if Hashem didn't tell it to me, then I'm sort of going to be in a bit of a huff. But he didn't do that, of course. And even though Hashem told it to Moshe, who then Moshe told the instructions to Aaron, Aaron did exactly as Moshe was commanded. And that is his praise. So the Muscular David says it's especially praiseworthy because he might have been upset that he didn't receive the Nevoah. So what he was doing was following the instructions of Moshe. Now, it occurred to me, and this is just a little chiddush from me, so you can uh, ignore it by all means, that maybe the muscular David is, identi- is, is um, fe- focusing on Rashi's particular language, which is shalohitu yamin usmal. He did not deviate right or left. Now, where else do we hear about not deviating right or left? In Pasha Shoftim, very good, which says you have to listen to the Shoftim, by which we learn you have to listen to the rabbis or the halachic experts. And it says there, Al According to the Torah, they will teach, and according to the judgment, but they will say, Ta'aseh, you will do, Lo Tasor, you will not deviate, Min Hadavar Asher Yagidu Lacha Yamin Usmol. You shall not deviate from the thing that they teach you, right or left. And Rashi's got something interesting to say on that in Shoftim, but that's not our point now. So it just occurs to me, maybe the muscular David thinks that Rashi says in this case in Tzav that they did not deviate, Aaron and his sons did not deviate right and left because they were following the Rav, who in this case was Moshe. So just as the Pasuk in Shoftim says, you follow the rabbis and you do not deviate right or left, Rashi says the same thing here. And that's perhaps why the muscular David understands Rashi is saying what the, the praise of Aaron was that he followed the Rav, who in this case was Moshe. Okay, that's just a little thought on something from this week's parasha. We were talking about the four rivers. Remember the four rivers? So if we look at, we'll go back, I think, to Pasuk Yud, Perukbet Pasuk Yud, which says, Vanaha Yotseme Eden Lahashkot et Hagan. 
Umisham Yipared Vahayala Arba Roshim. A garden, sorry, a river went out from Aden to water the garden, and from there it separated and it was for heads, for tributaries. And then we go through the next few Pesukim, which tells us the name. The first one was Pishon, and Rashi said that actually is better known to us as. Anyone? The Nile. The Nile. And then he explained what Pishon meant. And then he said um, it goes all around Hachavila, where there is the gold. That's what the Pasuk says. And then Pasuk Yud Gimel, the name of the second river was Gihon, uh, which goes around the land of Cush. And the third river comes up now in Pasuk Yud Dalet. So let's look at Pasuk Yud Dalet, where it says, V'shem Hanaha Hashalishi Chidekel. The name of the third river was Chidekel. Hu holech kidmat ashur. That went, well, we'll leave it untranslated, but something to do with east, of ashur. The hanaha ravi hu parat. And the fourth river is parat. So Rashi has something to say on Pasuk Yudalat, and he says chidkel. And he tells us what chidekel means. Shemeimav chadin v'kalin. Its waters were chadin, which is translated as sharp. I'm not quite sure what sharp waters taste like, but it's probably a nice thing. And they are light. And again, it's not clear what light waters means. Perhaps without sediment, perhaps they're like filtered. But it's a nice thing. So the Chidekel's waters are chadin v'kalin. So Chidekel is a word made up of chad and kal. And then finally, parat. Now, we know Parat as the Euphrates. By the way, the same root. Pei Resh Tet is in the middle of the word Euphrates. That's where it comes from. Shemeimav Parin Verabin. What is Parin Verabin? Peru Uruvu. Its waters are fruitful and multiplying. Umavrin et Adam. And they make healthy a person. There's a Gemara that says there are no people with Sarat in Bavel because they drink from the river Euphrates and it makes them healthy. Okay. Um, I think at this point, I will ask the question, why does Rashi feel the need to give an explanation, a drasha, on each of the names? He's actually gone through the names, Pishon and Gihon and Chidekel and Parat, and on each case, he's explained, if you like, the drasha behind the name. And he doesn't do this with every name. In fact, with most places in the Chumash, he doesn't suddenly give a drasha on the name. So why does he hear? So an answer is, based on what he said in Pasuk Yud Aleph, he said in Pasuk Yud Aleph that Pishan is better known to us as the Nile. In which case, that obviously raises the question, why is it called Pishan, if we know it as the Nile? And the reason it's called Pishan is because of the drasha. And the drasha on Pishan was, um, ufashu parashav, it multiplies. And he brought a Pasuk um, from Habakkuk to show that it means it multiplies. Or maybe it's related to Pishan, meaning flax. But either way, Pishan needs to be explained because we got the question, if it is the Nile, why isn't it called the Nile? And then, and I find this a little bit weak, but since he's explained Pishan, he explains all four. In other words, it's not quite like, you know, I've started, so I'll carry on. But rather, since Pishon is there as a drasha, then presumably the other three are there as a drasha as well, and he will explain what the drasha is. Then he... Oh, your silence means everything's clear? Or, or you're too... Uh, or you're formating questions as we speak, but please, you're welcome to, uh, to interrupt and uh, interject. Now, then... Um, Rashi carries on in his parish and Pasuk Yudalot. 
and he goes a little bit out of order. He goes back to talk about Kush and Ashur. Kush was mentioned in Pasuk uh, Yud Gimel, and Ashur was mentioned in Pasuk Yud Dalad. And then he talks about Kidmat Ashur, which was mentioned in Yud Dalad, and then he talks about the Prat. Now, why is he going out of order? He's gone through the four psukim, Yudalaf, Yudbet, Yudgimel, Yudalad, and now he sort of goes back and explains elements of them. So one answer is we're dealing with a printer's error. So there are those who say that you can certainly identify when things are a little bit awry with Rashi, it's because the printer mucked around with it at some stage in the past. And the printer thought that it's probably best to group these comments at the end. Or you can say, it's not the printer who grouped them, it's Rashi who grouped them. Because as you'll see, then now he's now talking about, geo, the, he's now bringing together the geographical elements. And it's sort of okay to deal them in one go. I'm not totally convinced by that, because Rashi normally is very strict to uh, make his comments in the same order in which they appear in the Chumash. But you could say that perhaps it's appropriate that when he's talking about the geographical references <laughs> to these places, then he groups them together at the end and does his geography shtick, which is what he's going to do now. So he says on Kushva Ashur, Adayin lo hayu, they were not yet. In other words, at this point in world history, which is the very beginning of world history, there was no place called Kush and there was no place called Ashur. V'katav ha-mikra al-shem ha-atid. And the Pasuk is writing about the name of the future. Now, Chumash does this a lot, and Rashi identifies this a lot, that the names are what you might call anachronistic because they're the names that we use at a later time and they're sort of uh, projected back to an earlier time, even though they're anachronistic. So by the Torah, time the Torah was given, we knew where Cush was, we knew where Ashur was, so the Torah refers to Cush and Ashur, even though at this particular time they did not exist. Now, are there any problems with this analysis? First of all, where do the names Cush and Ashur come from? Okay, what? Now, Cush was the son of Ham. How do I know that? Because it says at the end of Noah. Ah, you're nodding, you could have said earlier, you know, when I asked a question, you could have answered it. Okay, so I'll give you another go. Who was Ashur? <laughs> okay, Ashur was the son of Shem. Um, not in the line that led down to Abraham, but another line. So Cush and Ashur definitely didn't exist because they were people who were not yet born. And the states, or if you like the cities, because that's really what states were in those days, were not yet built. But there's a problem. If you look very carefully, there's another name. I'll help you. It's in Pasigur Aleph that Rashi doesn't address now at all. And where is that? Ha-chavilah. Ha-chavilah. Now, I think there's a, perhaps a problem, or a, there's a solution, because Chavilah is also a person. He was the grandson of Ham. I think he was son of Cush. You can check that. It's all there the, towards the end of Pashat Nach. But So Chavilah is also a person. So if Cush and Ashur are people who have not yet been born, so Chavilah is also a person who has not yet been born with a place named after him. But it is said, but it doesn't say Chavilah. It does say Kush, and it does say Ashur. It doesn't say Chavilah. What does it say? Do you want an answer? Oh, no, sorry, I have another question. Okay, come to your question. Right? It, what does it say? It doesn't say Chavilah. It says? Ha Chavilah. The Chavilah. So someone to suggest, the reason Rashi doesn't need to make a comment on it is because there was a place even then called the Chavilah. We might call it the Chavilah region. There was no place called Kush. Kush was built later. There was no place called Ashur. Ashur was built later. But maybe there was already a place called Chavilah and known as the Chavilah, which is why Rashi doesn't need to explain 
why we have this name Chavilah. Because if Kush and Ashur are anachronistic, maybe Chavilah is not, and maybe the Chavilah, unlike Kush and Ashur, which is not the Kush and not the Ashur, perhaps that explains that Chavilah was already an identified place. Yes? I was just wondering, if it, since it's all about they're saying the names retrospectively, then the whole thing about Pishon now being called the Nile, why wouldn't it just say the Nile? As in, I'm sure there were names for where Kush and Ashur were in this time. Well, well, maybe not, by the way. Maybe there were no names because there was not much human habitation. Right, but isn't Pishon is describing it as, it's not necessarily a place, but it's, it's the river that is... What does it say? Yeah, it's, it's a, Rashi says the river is the Nile. Who who right. us. The heart. So it's, it's not necessarily describing the place we shot, but it's more describing the actual river itself. No? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. It's the name so of the river. In the same way it would say for Kushan Ashur, it would say, you know, describing attributes of the place. Well, I think there's a difference between rivers and places. So the rivers... Rashi says the names are there, if you like, the Chumash is hinting at something in each case. The names, apparently, the names of places apparently not... They're not there for a drusha. If they were, that might explain it, but they're not, because Rashi doesn't bring any drusha on the word kush or the word ashur. So then I think he has to explain what's, what's the geographical implication, especially when they didn't have that name then. Okay? So Pishon is a river. It's got two names, if you like. It's got Pishon and Nilus. But kush and ashur have got no other names, and apparently they didn't belong at that time. Yeah. But going by that, Chavilah can't exist without, as a name without people. The only way names can exist is when people give them attribute their names. Well, Maybe we can say retroactively a knew that Kush and Ashur would be called Kush and Ashur, even though the parents of whoever named them Kush and Ashur would still... It, I, I know, it's, it's problematic. And I think, really, the absence of Chavilah from Rashi's list of anachronistic names is, is a problem. But obviously, we must find an answer. Um, <laughs> when you say there could not be names without people, logically, from a sort of anthropological point of view, I think that makes sense. But we know of at least one name that existed without people. Where was that? There's one region that's already been named. Aden. Aden and Gun Aden. So maybe there were other names. It doesn't say God named the place Chavilah, but maybe he did. Okay? But again, I mean, the point that I'm making that, that I saw, I forget exactly which one I saw it in, I'm sorry, is that hey, that hey does distinguish Chavilah from Ashur and Kush. It's treated in a different way. Maybe that's why Rashi doesn't need to say it's anachronistic. Then he says on Kidmat Ashur, he says, Le Mizracha Shel Ashur, which means it's to the east of Ashur. It's to the east of Ashur. So what is Rashi doing here and why does Rashi have to do it? So some want to say that there's a point that Rashi makes a lot um, when uh, there's a hay at the end of the name of a place. You might be familiar because Rashi seems to make this comment over and over again. A hay at the end of a place is the equivalent to Alamud at the beginning, right? Le Mitzrayim is the same as Mitzrayim Ma. And Rashi, it's, it's very odd, and I haven't actually seen a good explanation for this, says um, every time that hay at the end is like Lamud at the beginning. So someone to say that it's like there's a hay at the end, Kidma to the east, but because of the Smichut, Kidma and Ashur, the hay turns into a taf. So Rashi's saying it's a taf instead of a hay. But I would actually like to suggest, and again, this is my own Kiddush, that he says what he says because he has to contrast it with um, Pasuk Chet. So you have a similar word, not exactly the same word, but certainly from the same source, which Rashi explained differently in that place. And when Rashi, and this is a common feature of Rashi, when Rashi sees two things which look similar but are different, he would explain both of them. 
And when you come across the first, you think, well, what's the big deal? Why is he bothering to explain it? And then you understand in in contradistinction to the second, that's why I had to explain the first, and that's why he explains the second, to show that they're different. Please, God, we'll come across examples of that. So what did he say about the, what was the word in Chet that Rashi needed to explain? Mikedem. And how did he explain it? So Hashem planted Gan Be'eden Mikedem. So then Rashi explained that was Bemizrochoshel Eden, in the east of Eden. That doesn't mean east of Eden, which is the way I think it's translated in the uh, King James Version, but it's in the east part of Eden. So it was inside Eden, on the eastern side. Whereas here, what does Kidmat Ashur mean? On the east of Ashur. It doesn't mean it went through the middle of Ashur or went through the eastern side of Ashur, but rather it was east of Ashur. It went round the side of Ashur. So it seems to me, and again, I, I, with great trepidation, do I um, give my own shot here, because um, pretty much everything I ever tell you is from the Mephoshe Rashi. Um, but it seems to me that it could be that Rashi here in Pasuk um, Yud. Dalo, it was actually, it was uh, Kidmat Idan, uh, Kidmat Ashur was in Yudalat, is contrasting Kidmat with Mikedem in Pasuk Chet, which he said had a different meaning. And finally, Hu Parat. Notice the Dibhara Matchil, by the way. We'll come back to that. He doesn't just say, I'm commenting on the word Parat, he comments on the word Hu Parat. And he says, Hachashuv Shel Kulam, the most important of all of them, Hanizkar Al Shem Eret Yisrael. Which is because, or it is mentioned in connection with or on the name of Eretz Yisrael. When is Parat mentioned in relation to Eretz Yisrael? Promise to Abraham? Yes, promise to Abraham. When was that? Brit Ben Abitarium. Can you give me a reference, please? Uh, mm, please, please, please. You uh, Close. <laughs> um, Tetvav Tet is good. Um, there you go. Uh, That's absolutely correct. Okay, can you turn to Tetvav Yudchet? <laughs> so, in the Brit Benavatarim, very good. On that day, Hashem made a covenant with Avram. I will give you this land from the river of Egypt to the river of the Euphrates. By the way, this does not mean the land of Israel as we know it today should extend from the Nile to the Euphrates, taking in not just Israel, so-called occupied territories, and Jordan, and most of Iraq, which I don't think really even the most right-wing of politicians are campaigning for. But there was promised to Abraham something more than Eretz Israel. How many nations were promised to Abraham at this peric? The land of how many nations? Okay, I'll tell you, the land of ten <laughs> nations was promised to Abraham in the Brit Ben Batarim, which was subsequently reduced to seven. What happened to the other three? So that's another story, a fascinating story. But the simple answer is, this was like, this is more than Eretz Israel. This is a bigger promise of Eretz Israel, which was a subsection. Anyway, how is Naha Parat described? Naha Hagadol, Naha Parat. The great river, the river Euphrates. Now look at Rashi there on Pasuk Yudchet, because he says something interesting on Nahar Gadol, which relates to our Pasuk. Nahar Gadol, in Pasuk Yudchet, of Perak Tetvav, Lefishahu davuk Eretz Yisrael, because it is stuck together with Eretz Yisrael, Karohu Gadol, it's called great. So it's called great because of its uh, connection to Eretz Yisrael, because things connected to Israel are great. 
Not because it was a great river. And I, it wasn't a great river. You know how I know? Even though it was the last listed amongst the four rivers that went out from Adam. As it says, uh, And then he goes on to say that if you're associated with something great, then you, the greatness rubs off on you. And that's the nature of Naha Parat was great only because of its connection to Eretz Israel. So, we find out, according to Rashi, in Perak Tetvav, Pasit Yudchet, that the river Euphrates was not the greatest of them all, by sort of size or anything like that. It was the puniest of them all, and that's why it's listed fourth. So now come back to our Rashi. Says Rashi, It's the most important of all. So he has to say it's the most important of all, because in, I suppose, I don't know, I don't know what the criteria are for measuring the greatness of a river. I don't know, size, speed, I don't know. But whatever, whatever criteria it had, it came number four in the league. And yet, here in Rashi says it's Chashuv al-Kulam. Now, why is, what, what is pointing to the fact that it's Chashuv al-Kulam? After all, the fact that it's number four, it makes it the, most, the, the least great river. So why does Rashi say it's Chashuv al-Kulam? It's the most important of all. I think potentially it hasn't got, hasn't got any reference to the land of the Eretz. Like, I don't know if that's connected because all the other three rivers have Eretz around This the is true. It's not what I was going to say, but that's interesting. You're implying that it's like got its own significance because yeah. the others are significant in relation to the land to which they flow. Maybe, maybe. But I didn't see that. But what I did see, I think it's the Mizrahi, was the who. Hanaha Haravi, who Parat. Like it's, I'm telling you something important. The fourth river, it doesn't say the fourth river is Parat. The fourth river, that one is the Parat, is the Euphrates. And I think that's, that, that idea is, is bolstered by the fact that who Parat is Rashi's Dibaramatchil here. He doesn't just say the word Parat is what he's commenting on, but the word who Parat, and that is significant. So if Rashi chooses to include the word who in his quote that he's explaining, that tells you he is explaining the word who. So maybe you can say that who Parat is what tells you it's significant. Now, why is it significant? It can't be that it's the greatest river, because Rashi says elsewhere it's not the greatest river, and if it were the greatest river, apparently it would be listed first. So what is important about it? Hanizkar al-shem Eretz Yisrael, because it's mentioned in relation to Eretz Yisrael. So I said last week that I was going to share with you a vort from the Malbim on the issue of the four rivers. And um, I don't want to do this very often because I want this year to focus on Rashi's message and methodology. But I do feel, I always feel when I learn this section, but this business about the four rivers cries out, Dorsheni, cries out, explain me. You know, we're learning about the most fundamental um, event in the history of the world, not the most important, that was Matan Torah, but the one that really set the scene for everything else. And we're about to learn about Adam and Rishon and, and Chava and, and, and uh, the tree and all that. And we get this four pesukim, five pesukim, um, for this obscure geography lesson that doesn't seem to be necessary. So the Malbim says as follows. I'm not saying this is sharp, but I think it's a beautiful idea. He's saying these rivers tell you the way not to go. The first river um, is, goes to where the gold is, and that represents the middle of avarice, of greed. The second river goes to Cush, which is next to Mitzrayim, and Mitzrayim is the place of depravity. Uh, we're told in Pashat Achremot, don't do the things that they used to do in Mitzrayim. And they are lustful things which a person should keep away from. 
And the third river goes to Ashur, which at least for a while was the mightiest power in the ancient world. Ashur under Sancherev was one that uh, uh, took, destroyed the northern kingdom, took away the ten lost tribes, nearly captured Yerushalayim, but by a miracle it didn't. So Ashur represents power. So the first three rivers, which are the ways not to go, represent greed and lust and a desire for power. And the fourth river is the way that you should go. Because where does the fourth river go to? It goes to Eretz Israel. And that's our destiny. And I think this is a very nice idea because the Malbim says it, it's the preface to what's going to come next, which is about mankind going in the wrong direction. Mankind is about to sin and eat from the Eitz Adas, which is not the right thing to do. Where it should have gone, well, I don't want to give too much away, but instead of going for the Eitz Adas, you can say it should have gone for the Eitz Achayim. Rashi doesn't really say that, but, but others do. But I would also add that really this is a good preface to the entire Torah, because the entire Torah is about finding our way back. We started in Gan Eden, we got lost, things went wrong. And the rest of the entire Torah is about how we find our way back. And our Gan Eden doesn't, rely, doesn't lie in literally Gan Eden. For us, where do we find it? We go back to Israel. Because the whole Torah is about the Jewish people on their way back to Israel. And the Torah ends with them just about to cross the, to cross the Yardin to get there. So in a sense, so the Malbim says these four rivers are about three incorrect directions, followed by the fourth direction, which is the way to go which is, in a sense, the story which is, it prefaces of what happens in Gan Eden. And I would say, even on a greater scale, it's an introduction to the entire Torah, which is about getting lost and finding our way back, if you like, following the path of the Euphrates, back to Eretz Yisrael. Okay. Yes? Um, just you mentioned in like, juxtaposition or just before that in the Britain Habitarium when the Naharaprat is mentioned in the context of Israel, it also talks about, like, that it will be the fourth generation who goes back, like the door of Yeshua, like that it is something, I don't know if you think you're, you're, that number four, that like it probably wasn't four generations unless you count like Yosef, like yeah, yeah. four generations or 400 years. Like, so you're saying there's something four, like, four the being, return. Okay. Um, we have to see the Ma- the Maral because if, if there's something significant about the number four, the Maral will say it. He said there is something significant in the Maral about the number four because it's a certain level of completeness because there are four sides. Then again, six is complete because if you add another third dimension, and seven <laughs> is complete and ten is complete, but 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 four represents a certain completeness. So um, if we say um, as the Maral does, there's no coincidences, there's no coincidence in number. Then, if we can add that Malbim to that Maral, then there might be a significance, and the fourth river is the one that takes you home, like the fourth generation. Okay. Sorry? Yes? Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes? Okay, we'll carry on. We'll carry on. Okay, thank you very much for the thought. Pasuk Tet Vav, the story resumes after the river deviation. And it says, Vayekach Hashem Elohim et ha'adam v'yanichechu began edem la'avda u'lashamra. Hashem Elohim took the person, there's a reason why I keep saying person, not man, and he placed it in the garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. So Rashi says on the word Vayikach, that's all he has to say on this Pasuk, and he says Vayikach, 
Lakhu bedavarim naim. He took him with nice words. Ufitahu and persuaded him likanes to enter. This is the sort of comment that Rashi makes many times. I found today ten times that Rashi makes a comment like this. I have to stress, it's not because I'm a great bocce in every word of Rashi, but because I can search on the computer. And I found ten, I found ten times where the Torah says the word kach or lakach, Hashem took or he took or Moshe took, a person. And Rashi, I think every time, explains in that situation, it means he took him with words, he persuaded him. Every case where somebody takes a person or a group of people, Rashi will tell you he took them or him with words. So what's Rashi saying? Rashi's telling us something about the word kach. So what does kach mean? Kach means to take. Now, when you take an inanimate object, it means you move it. You lift up something and you take it to another place. But people are not inanimate objects. People are not taken in that sense. You don't lift up a person and put them down. Or at least you might do, but that's not what is being meant here. So when a person, a human being with knowledge and, and, and uh, moral autonomy is taken, Rashi says it always means persuaded. It does not mean lifted up and put down. Or you could say that it's the metaphorical equivalent because what you take when you take a person, you take their mind. You take their decision making. You don't take it away, but you take it in a certain place. So Adam Arishan was there thinking about who knows what. And Hashem made him think about going into Gan Eden. That's what Rashi says. So you could say, so basically I, I want to say you can say one of two things. Either kach in the case of people doesn't mean take, it means persuade. Or kach in the case of people means take, but take their mind. And how do you take someone's mind? You can't physically lift it out. You take them by persuading them. So that's what Rashi has to say here. And it's consistent with what he says on, I think, every occurrence of taking in relation to a person. So, anything else to say about that? Yeah. Yes. Um, Mr. Schubert, Pastor Tafet says, they put him in there already. So why is it saying that he already persuaded him to go in there again? That is a very good question. The question is, if in Pasuk Chet, it actually said, sham et ha'adam, Hashem put there in Gan Eden the person, why does it say in Pasuk Tet Vav, v'yekach Hashem alakim et ha'adam, v'yanichecho b'gan Eden? Hashem, following Rashi, persuaded the Adam, and put him in Gan Eden. And I don't know. That's a very good question. You, Josh, you got an answer? No, but I have a suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> Could there potentially be a difference between the word, so like, same man, kach, meaning, as Rashi seems to explain, kach is with your mind, sin could potentially be physically. So while Adam could have potentially physically have been in Gan Eden, he wasn't, I guess, like, he wasn't there. In the mindset of the, the, that's an interesting idea, but you're saying in Pasuk Chet, Hashem put him there, and in Pasuk Tet, Hashem, sorry, Tet Vav, Hashem gave him the mindset. The problem is Tet Vav has the word Vayanichehu, which means he placed him. Now, it's not the same word as before, but it's a similar, we'd have to find a way of explaining the two different things. Now, there is a simple answer. 
which is, Rashi's already said, but the whole of Perik Bet is the elucidation of Perik Aleph. That Perik Aleph is, is the brief introduction and Perik Bet is the details. So it's not hard to say that Pasuk Chet is the brief overview. And then we get more of a picture in Pasuk Tet Vav. The problem with what I've just said is nobody comments on that. Rashi doesn't say that. And why you need to have Pasuk Chet and also Pasuk Tet Vav. The interruption, of course, has been the rivers. Why you need to tell us, talk about it before the rivers and then after the rivers, um, I don't know. Um, all I can say, and this isn't satisfactory, is Rashi doesn't see it as a problem because Rashi does nothing to say. So we'll leave it in Sorech Ian, which means good for further study. Are you so? The yes. So in Pasuk Tet Vav, he's placed there for a purpose, la'avda or la'shamra, to work it and to guard it. And in Pasuk Tet, there was no purpose. Um, it also works because there was no, there were no trees as well before there. There were no but trees, so there was nothing to guard. And then there was nothing to be done there. Regarding. Yes, in Pasuk Tet is when the trees grew. So are you saying it's? the same thing told in a different way or a new thing? Mm. <laughs> it's a different I guy. Um, <laughs> as it, um, I think it's, it's like there's a chiddush in it that, yeah, yeah, there's a chiddush in it. Now, same thing, now, but with a chiddush. Okay. But I think that would justify one verb, but not by and by Yeah. Okay, as I say, we'll leave that in Sarachian. If anyone has got an idea, let me know. If anyone listening to the podcast <laughs> has got an idea, please send your suggestions to james at kenar.com. <laughs> but let's move on to Pasuk Tet Zion. <laughs> Pasuk Tet Zion. Vayitzav Hashem Elohim al ha'adam leimor. Hashem Elohim commanded on the person, saying, Mikol eitz agan, from all the trees of the gun of the garden, you can surely eat. It's the infinitive um, construct, which is the repetition of achel, which we usually translate rather clumsily as surely. You can really, really eat. So that's the mitzvah. But then in Pasuk Yud Zion, it says, and from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will not eat mimenu from it. Because on the day that you eat mimenu from it, you will surely die. Now, what does Rashi have to say on these two pasukim? Nothing! Which is pretty surprising, if you think, because something really important is going on. But Rashi doesn't see it as something that needs explaining. So, I will just add one word. That um, I would like to suggest that the most important concept that we have in Judaism is a concept which unfortunately is not properly understood, and that is a mitzvah. Mitzvah, if I can just go on a hobby horse for a moment, is too often translated as good deed, as a nice thing to do. That's not what mitzvah means. What does mitzvah mean? Commandment, which is something you must do. And why do I say it's the most important idea in Judaism? Because it's the basis of our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Our Kaddish Baruch Hu gives us mitzvot, and we, to the best of our ability, fulfill those mitzvot. That's the deal. That's the two-way partnership. Um, there's other aspects to it as well. We learn Torah, we daven, he has other ways of communicating with us. But the basic nature of the contract, of the Brit, between us, is mitzvot. And it's perhaps significant, in fact, I'm sure it's significant, that at the very creation of humankind, 
the first thing that Hashem does with the Adam is to give him a mitzvah. He only had one mitzvah, and unfortunately he couldn't keep that. But the, he doesn't say, hello, welcome to the garden. He says, here's the mitzvah. That is the relationship between God and humanity. Um, this is always troubled me because, I mean, it's <coughs> to surely die, and that's not the case. And I, okay, well spotted. Um, I'm not saying we're going to find an answer. I'm not even sure of the answer. But later on, um, when, they, when we have the whole incident, when they do eat from the fruit, we'll see a bit more. Okay, so we'll hold that question. Quickly, so yes. I don't know if it's relevant, if it's not, obviously, but I passed. The, the language, Etzav Hashem, Elohim, Al-Hadam. Is that usually by Etzav Hashem, Et-Hadam? Yeah. I'm not sure if I doesn't comment. If it's not for the Shia, leave it. But I don't know if... Um... Well, it's not for the Shia because I don't know the answer either. Why it's Vayetzav Hashem, Elohim, Al-Hadam, not Et-Hadam. Um, definitely, it's a good question. And I'm just looking to see if Unculus has something helpful. He says Al-Adam, direct translation. Um, so, again, good question. But we'll move on. To Pasuk Yudchet. Vayomer Hashem Elokim lo tov heyot ha'adam levado, e'eser lo eza kenegdo. And I think I'm going to leave most of this untranslated. Uh, the first bit says, Hashem Elokim said. We'll, we'll translate that bit. But the rest we will leave untranslated and we'll try and work backwards from Rashi. So Rashi says on probably one of the most famous quotes in the entire Bible, he says like this, Lo tov heyot, shalo yomru That people should not say there are two powers. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hu yachid be'elyonim. The Holy One, blessed be He, is singular, is unique in the upper worlds. Ve'ein lo zuk and has no partner or equivalent. Vazer, and this one, the, hum- the human, betachtonim, is the equivalent in the lower worlds, the ein lo zug, and has no partner. Now, for those who've seen Rashi before, this is what Rashi says. For those who haven't, I suspect there might be a little bit of a surprise. Because we usually translate this pasuk as, God said it is not good for man to be alone, and then we say that man is an existential social animal and man needs a partner and women and man get together and all sorts of things. It's not good for man to be alone. However, Rashi says none of that. Rashi says is there would be a theological problem. People, well, I said people. I don't know who the people would be, actually. They're not humans, but others would get the wrong idea and would see the, unique, the uniqueness of Hashem, who is, has no partner, and the uniqueness of man, if he has no partner, as somehow equivalent. And that would be a bad thing. And Rashi says this because he doesn't translate it as it is not good for man to be alone. How does he translate it? He translates it based on the words. Lotov heyot ha'adam levado. How would we translate that? Okay, since this pause is getting too long and too awkward, <laughs> I will say, man's being alone is not good. It's not not good for man. It doesn't say le adam. It's heyot ha adam. The being of man, le vado, alone, is not good. So there's something intrinsically bad as far as the whole of creation is concerned about man, heyot adam lavado, the man being alone. It doesn't say it's not good for man, which is how we normally understand it. It doesn't say that. 
It says man's being alone is something in of itself which is not good. So what's it, what's it not good for? If it's not good, it's not not good for man because it doesn't say la adam. So it's not good for the universe. Now, how can man's being alone be not good for the universe? That's what Rashi says. That's why man's being alone creates this fundamental theological problem that would lead people or some entities to get the wrong idea. Yes? That, like, suit the terminology of connector because it's equivalent to, like, to underscore the fact that there is something equivalent to... Wow, that's not what Rashi says, as you probably know. Um, but what you're saying is that SLO is a connecto is the answer because connecto is equivalent to it, which is precisely what's necessary to take away man's uniqueness, which parallels God's uniqueness. Um, it could be. It's interesting that Rashi doesn't say that, but it, it, it's certainly an interesting idea. So what does Rashi say? What's the solution? Ezer connecto. And Rashi says, Zachar Ezer, Lo Zachar, connecto. Lehilachem, to fight. Zacha, if he merits, Ezer, I'll say she because we know it's going to be she, is an Ezer, a, an assistant, a helper, um, working in the same direction. Lo Zachar, if he does not merit, then Konegdo, she is Konegdo, which is, well, how's he translating Konegdo? So you would say it's like equivalent to him. How often, what else is Neged? Against him. Against him, Against him or opposite him. Rashi adds, lehilachem, to fight. Okay, why does Rashi say this? Now, what else can connecto mean? So if you look at, um, it's at the end of Yitz, uh, Yaakov meeting Esav, um, when Esav says, why don't you come with me? And Esav, Yaakov says, thanks very much, but uh, I don't really need to. Pasuk uh, Yudbet. Sorry, Lamad Gimel Yudbet. Perik Lamad Gimel Pasuk Yudbet. So, Esau suggests to Yaakov, his newly found long lost brother, Vayomer, he said, Nisa, we will travel, Venelacha, and we will go, Vaelacha, and I will go, Lenegdecha. Lenegdecha. And Rashi says there, on what? Elacha lenegdecha. If you look at Rashi, in Perak Lamagim, on Pasuk Yudbet, B'shaveh lacha, equal to you. So there, lenegdecha is equal to you. So why doesn't he say here, Kenegdo is equal to him? Why does he go into this, Zacha, Eza, Lo Zacha, Kenegdo, Lechilachem? So first of all, one can say, it's not the same word. Maybe, there's a difference between le negdecha and ke negdo. Um, it's, I mean, the question I raise, which is not my original question, is a good question, but maybe the clue is in, the answer is in the way the words are written. And you can't really make a comparison from le negdecha to ke negdo. That's the first point. But I don't think that's really what's bothering Rashi here. What's bothering Rashi is we have two words which are contradictory. And we come across words which, are, which occur in a pair and are contradictory. Uh, ger toshav. Is somebody a ger or is there a toshav? What does a ger toshav mean? And the answer is, well, it's got elements of both, but it's not, it's not a ger, it's not a toshav. Um, look at Rashi in the uh, beginning of, um, of uh, Chayisara, 
where Avraham says, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem. And Rashi gives two explanations there. And uh, in the Hanvalevit style, what is the precise difference between the two? And the difference is whether Ger and Toshav can coexist or must be seen as opposites. Um, there is a fancy Greek word, which I forget and I should have prepared because uh, it's really fancy, um, <laughs> for two words which come as a pair which actually mean opposites. Ger and Toshav is one and Eza Konegdo is another. Because, and I think this is what's driving Rashi, in fact, this is obviously what's driving Rashi, either you're an Eza or you're a Konegdo. They don't fit together. So then Rashi has to say they are two possibilities and they're not um, compatible. They are mutually exclusive. So this partner to Adam is either going to be an Ezer or is going to be a Konegdo. Konegdo meaning opposite, not being equivalent. If it meant equivalent, I think, I think if it meant equivalent, then you don't need to say Ezer Konegdo. Uh, what would that mean? A helper who's equivalent. Well, again, you've already got the same problem. Because if they're a helper, does that mean they're equivalent? Um, but it's connecto. If you take probably the, the word that is more commonly uh, used as a translation, meaning opposite, then you get Asa and connecto, which have opposite meanings. How can they go together? So Rashi says it's one or the other. Zachar Azer, lo zachar connecto lehilachem. If he merits, she's his assistant, he, she's his helper, she's working with him. If he doesn't merit, then she is opposite him. Yes? Is there any reason why, I, I don't know, unfortunately, well enough, like, is there any reason why, is there it or whatever, or there's no, oh, what's it's, like, right? in the, it's in the masculine and on, like, the helper in itself. Why is it refer- referenced as a male helper, I guess? Uh, Ezer should be Ezra, I yeah. suppose, or Ezoret. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We so haven't identified... Well, yes, I mean, I said... Have genders not really been... Or sexes, at least, not been um, I su- identified? I suppose so. And, and again, I'll ask you to hold that question, because when we're going to see what's going to happen to Adam, that's going to be actually relevant. So we'll leave it as that. I think we can simply say that we haven't invented the feminine gender at this point, and therefore we don't use the feminine gender, even though we're referring to what's going to be Adam's female partner. Um, what does Zachar mean? On what basis does uh, Adam merit that she's his Azer? How do you normally understand that? So I just want to say we normally understand that, and I used to understand that, as uh, if he's good, if he does the right thing, then she helps. And if he lo Zachar, if he's not good, if he does the wrong thing, then she doesn't help. Which, by the way, and that never sounds a little bit like apologetics, um, to excuse the sexism, it turns out that the, the female partner is always doing the right thing. Because if the male is doing the right thing, the female's doing the same. If the male's doing the wrong thing, the female's doing the opposite, which means the female <laughs> always does the right thing. Which sounds a little bit like, like apologetics, but it also could be what it says. How about it? That's also true. Yes. <laughs> so it didn't... <laughs> so it, it fell at the first fence. <laughs> Interestingly enough... This is based, this comes straight from a Gemara. This line um, uh, it comes from Yavamat Samach um, Gimel, uh, where a lot of this stuff about the creation of man and woman is listed. And Rashi there says, Zachar, meaning if he has a good muzzle. Mem Zayin Lamad. If he has a good fortune. <laughs> Not M U Z Z L E, but Mem Zayin Lamad. Um, a mazel, a mazel is a constellation. When you wish somebody mazel tov, it really doesn't mean congratulations. It means may you have a good constellation, which from a sort of astrological idea will give you good fortune. Um, 
We won't talk about astrology now. So the Gemara, or rather Rashi on the Gemara, says that Zacha does not mean he deserves it or he's being good, but his fortune shines on him, as it were. And if he's fortunate, she's an Ezer. And if he's not fortunate, she's Konegto. Okay, let's move on. Oh, yes. When you, when you brought the name Zecha from Esav and Yaakov, what was, the, what was the point of that? Could it mean that it, it could be Ezek Negdo? Like, because that would mean equal there. Yeah, he said, I will go alongside you. Yeah. Like, we'll go at the same pace. That's literally what it means. So we'll, is, that, is that what you say? That that's potential understanding of the word? Yeah, I'm saying there are places where Kenegid means equivalent to. Okay. But Rashi doesn't adopt that here. Okay. He adopts it as in, uh, against okay, yeah. instead. Yeah, okay. And I asked why. Okay, Shh, guys, let's move on. Um, Time, well, we'll see if we can get to Shlishi tonight. Um, and then I'll tell you now, and we're not going to meet again for two weeks, but we will come across probably the hardest Rashi conceptually um, out of many. Not the hardest to understand in terms of his textual analysis, but the hardest conceptually. We'll save that for a treat for next time. But we'll look at Pasuk Yutet now, which says, Vayitzer Hashem Elokim min ha'adama kol chayat hasadeh. Hashem formed from the ground all the living things of the field, the et kol of hashemayim, and all the birds of the heavens, vayavei el ha'adam lirot ma yikra lo, and he brought to the man to see what they would be called to him, v'chol asher yikra lo ha'adam, and everything that the man called to him, nefesh chaya, the living soul, Hu Shemo, it is its name. So there's quite a few things to say in this Pasuk. Let's see how far we get in the next few minutes. So in Pasuk Yotet, Rashi says on the words, Hashem min ha'adama. Hu, sorry, hi yitzira, hi asiya ha'amura lamala. This is the yitzira, which I translate as formed. And this is the making, which sounds more like creation ex nihilo, from nothing, which was said above, back in Perak Aleph Pasuk Kafhei, where it says, Vayas Elokim et chayat ha'aretz v'gomer. Hashem made the, the beasts of the, of the land, etc. So, first thing that Rashi is dealing with is the apparent repetition. It's not just apparent repetition, it is repetition. And we've talked many times now about the fact that Perak Bet echoes a lot of what's already said in Perak Aleph. And Rashi says, I don't have a problem with this. It's natural. It's a it's sort of a literary style of the Torah to give a general introduction and then to go more specific. So don't think this is another creation. This is just an echo of what we learned in Perak Aleph. But there's a reason why we're repeating it. And Rashi will now tell you what that is. Elabah. But it comes, Ufiresh, and explains, Sha'afot min harakak nivra'u. That the birds were created min rakak. Rakak is mud. And it gives, I think there are some different editions here, because some of the editions I looked at had different phrases here. My, my edition has got a word in Old French now. Rakak geravel. is geravel balaz in Old French, which I believe means yeah. mud. Yeah? Gravel? Well... Uh, it won't be gravel, as we understand it, but maybe it's the word is related. So what Rashi is saying is there's a reason for the repetition. There's a new detail, a detail that we learn now that wasn't there before. How do I know it's created from mud? Now, this is clever because nowhere in the Torah does it say the birds were created from mud. But what it does say is this. Lafisha amala mala. Because it said earlier on in the first example, the first instance in Perak Aleph, Pasuk Kaf, that the birds were created from the water. 
That's what happened on the fifth day of creation. Vakanomar, and here it says, Min ha'adama nivra'u. They were, buried, they were created from the ground, from the earth. So it's telling you that the, the, the true story is found out by looking at two different sections and putting them together. So in one place it says from water, and the other place it says from earth. So what's happened? They were created from a mixture of water and earth, which is what we call mud. And that's what the birds were created from. What that means in sort of uh, um, uh, biological terms, I don't know. Let's not go there. But Rashi is saying that the, uh, the two versions put together give you this new information. And then he says, um, there's another thing that it teaches you. It teaches you here, at the time of the forming, Miyad Bobayom Heviam El Ha'adam immediately on the same day he brought them, that's Hashem brought them El Ha'adam to the Adam, Likrot Lahem Shem, to call them their name. So there's two pieces of information which are given to us by the repetition of the creation of animals. So Rashi's first point is it's a repetition. Why is it a repetition? To tell you two additional things. One the birds were created from mud. How do we know that? Because it says here, Adama, it says Desh, Mayim, you put them together, you get mud. Two, it's the chronological juxtaposition that immediately on their creation, they were brought to the Adam to be named. That's what we see here, because Pasuk Yotet says at the very beginning, V'yitzer Hashem Elohim, and in the very same breath it says, V'yavei El HaAdam, He brought them to the man. Now, why do we need two extra piece of information to explain what's going on. Well, one possibility, by the way, this isn't a classic Rashi, I'll give you one explanation and then I'll give you another explanation. So it could be that Rashi thinks there are two things you can learn from this. One thing will be enough, but two things is even better. Or it could be that it is like, like we see elsewhere, Rashi's giving two explanations. And uh, the muscular David, I often quote the muscular David because I've said to you, that's the, he's the best place to look at for a resolution of this type of problem, why Rashi says two things. And he says that both of them are a little bit lacking. Um, and I forget exactly what was lacking. If it's about the birds being created from the mud, um, I think his answer, I think is, that could have been said in the first section. It doesn't need to be split mud and uh, earth and water in two goes. Um, and if it was just to tell you that as soon as they were created, they were brought to man, that also we don't need the whole bit about Hashem created them, min ha'adama. We don't need to know what they were created from. All we need to know is Hashem created them and brought them to the man. So there's a lot of extra words in this pasuk. And the only way to explain all the extra words is to give the two explanations that Rashi's brought. By the way, there is a problem. Is it true that the birds and the animals on the moment, immediately on their creation were brought to man? No. Why not? When wasn't there man? On the sixth day. Well, which one, when were birds created? On the fifth day. So you have to say that it's only the animals that were born on the day they were created. That the animal, the birds waited a day. So when Rashi says... Um, you have to say that he's only talking about the animals there and not the birds. 
because it simply cannot be that the birds were brought on the same day. It is 9.29, so even though we've got some exciting stuff yet to come in this very verse, and certainly what's going to come soon, we will stop there, and we will meet in Yetz Hashem in two weeks' time. Thank you very much. Thank you.